Hi there and welcome to the Thriving on Purpose broadcast. My name is Sebastian Richard. Before we start this week's broadcast, just a quick announcement. If you haven't already done so, make sure you head on to thrivingonpurpose.com and sign up to our weekly newsletter to stay up to date with all of our news, updates, and to get store discounts. This will enable you as well to follow this ministry despite all the sent. Uh, all the censorship that's going on. And while you're at it, make sure that you check out our unique kingdom, kingdom patriot, I should say, remnant and entrepreneurial merchandise, jewelry and apparel that we have carefully uh, put in the store for your viewing and buying pleasure, of course, uh, such as this nice little cap right there. And if you feel led to partner with our teaching ministry or to sow a seed to uh, encourage this ministry, you can do so on our website by clicking the Give button. Now, I have taken far too much of your time. Let's get on with this week's broadcast as we continue our study of understanding the kingdom of God. So tonight it's going to be part 2A. Uh, and why is it A and B? Maybe you guys have been wondering that because I did part 1A and 1B for the introduction. And now I'm doing part 2A. It's only, it's a pretty simple uh, concept. It's because the chapters in the book, as you don't, by the way, parenthesis, uh, as you know, we're going through the book, Kingdom Fundamentals. That's my book. And uh, we're going through the whole book. And the chapters are quite long. So uh, since I'm reading from the book and commenting as I go, uh, I want to make sure that the broadcast will last like two hours long. It would exhaust me and it would exasperate you probably anyway. So uh, that way it enables me to go through the content in depth while keeping the broadcast podcast a, a reasonable amount of time between 45 minutes and an hour, maybe an hour and 10 minutes. So that's the way I, I decided to do it. So I split up the uh, the chapters that are quite long in uh, two parts. So tonight is part 2A. We're going to be talking about the glorious government of God. So chapter 2, the glorious government of God. And the subtitle of this chapter is Exploring the Constituents of God's Kingdom. So what constitutes the kingdom of God? There are many, many components to the kingdom of God, and we're going to look at that in this chapter. George Washington said, It is impossible to rightly govern a nation without God and the Bible. Now, we know that back then, they had a more fervent faith. Uh, the, the founding fathers had more of a fervent faith when it came to the things of God, even the population. The, we were not in a postmodern world where um, uh, liberalism is, is ruling the hearts and minds of men as today. Nevertheless, this truth is still very true. There is this story told about Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt. When he came to the Red Sea, he asked God for help. God told him there was good news and bad news. The good news, said the voice on high, is that I will part the sea so you can so you and your people can escape. And what's the bad news? asked Moses. You will have to file an environmental impact statement. 
<laughs> of course, you caught that this is a joke, of course. Uh, the point is, we're talking about government and all that uh, governments may uh, bring or require. And like many people, perhaps even like you, I have never been a big fan of government. I used to believe, and to a large extent, if you're following my Facebook uh, profile, you will notice that I still do, that government and politics were strictly man's inventions stemming from a selfish desire for control and power. I used to jokingly say, I still do actually, the world politics is composed of two Latin words, poly, meaning many, and ticks, which are blood-sucking parasites. I also thought that God had little to do with man's politics, government, and laws. These, in my understanding, were man-made means of mass control and deceit. I held, and still do, a conspiratorial view of governments. Notwithstanding, I believe I misunderstood in part where government really comes from, its origins, if you will. Man's penchant to establish laws, rules, and governments is not because he is inherently wicked or seeking power. It is not a haphazard, quick, a haphazard quirk in his personality either. No, rather it is an expression of the God in whose image we were made. God is a lover of just laws and just government. These ideals stem from him. In fact, the kingdom of God is established on just laws and, yes, also just government. It is now my understanding that man's governments are in many ways imperfect reflections of the government of the kingdom of heaven. The concepts and principles of heaven's government have found their way into man's psyche and ultimately into our reality. While man's government is obviously flawed, it does in many ways parallel the, reality, the realities of God's system of governance. I'm just going to have a little drink of water here. Now, as I'm saying this, are there some bad people in the government who entered politics with twisted and selfish motives? Of course there are. But the desire to implement governments in cities, states, and countries is not in itself wicked. It is an expression of the divine order and God's ways and will through man. The Bible reminds us of these facts not only in Romans chapter 13, 1 through 7, but also in 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, and verse 17b in the New King James Version. Peter says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who do good. Fear God, honor the king. In that order, of course. And yes, obedience to authorities for the believer should be done provided it does not interfere with our duties and allegiance to God, our King, and the kingdom of heaven. 
Although the Bible does tell us that the wicked governments of the earth will be judged and ultimately destroyed, the scriptures, surprisingly, are far from being anti-government per se. That is because there is such a thing as good government. And for this reason, we should familiarize ourselves with it, good government, with we should familiarize ourselves with good government more. When we understand what good government is, we can better identify and point out the bad government and avoid deception. Kingdoms and monarchy, forgotten concepts. For those of us who live in Western civilization, the concept of a kingdom has become hazy at best. Instead, we have become familiar with governments, presidents, prime ministers, etc. You talk to a Westerner about monarchy, and he will look at you as if you were talking about fairy tales in a faraway land from times past. We just have a tough time wrapping our minds around it. This is no fault of our own, since, we, since most of us didn't grow up under a distinct monarchy. Or, if we have, it is like that of the British Commonwealth, where, while it is still in effect, its legislation has given way to a more modern administration in the guise of modern government. All this to say that clearing up the fog about kingdom concepts is necessary for believers to better understand the rule of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a theocracy. The definition of a theocracy, according to Britannica, is a government by divine guidance or by officials who are regarded as divinely guided. In many theocracies, government leaders are members of the clergy and the state's legal system is based on religious law. God's theocracy, his kingdom, is the only form of government that can redeem and save mankind. For this reason alone, I feel it is necessary that every person should be instructed as to its nature and general characteristics. And so, it is with this first chapter that I decided to elucidate the kingdom of God's nature and describe some of its general characteristics, concepts, and elements. This will set the stage, so to speak, and serve as a solid foundation for the rest of these teachings, the contents you will find in these teachings. Kingdom knowledge and awareness are something I have found severely, severely lacking in our church's teachings in general and individual believers' lives. To know how to operate in the kingdom of God, you need to know how the kingdom of God operates. Let me repeat that because it's important. To know how to operate in the kingdom of God, you need to know how the kingdom of God operates. Those who seek to understand and know more about the kingdom of God will reap tremendous rewards for their lives. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 52, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. I believe Jesus was saying here that everyone, especially teachers and scholars and scribes, who get instructed in the things of the kingdom will grow in their understanding of both the old and new covenants. Uh, 
Kingdom instructions bring more clarity into the ways of God and into his will for man. God is indeed involved in government, his government for his kingdom. Kingdom equals government. In the book of Isaiah, we are given an amazing prophecy regarding Jesus and his role as ultimate ruler. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, we read, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice for that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The prophecy I just stated concerning Jesus Christ as the coming Messiah portrays him as a bringer of government and as a ruler, as a prince, no less. It speaks of the coming kingdom of God, at the time it was a coming kingdom, as a governing authority through its Messiah. We are all quite familiar with the words of the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. But it was Shakespeare who said, familiarity breeds content. We have become so familiar with the words of the Lord's Prayer that we seem to take them for granted, or worse, we ignore their meanings. I like the words of N.T. Wright when he said, the phrase, kingdom of heaven, which we find frequently in Matthew's gospel, where the others have kingdom of God, does not refer to a place called heaven where God's people will go after death. It refers to the rule of heaven, that is, of God, being brought to bear in the present world. Thy kingdom come, said Jesus. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' contemporaries knew Jesus's contemporaries knew that the Creator God intended to bring justice and peace to his world here and now. The question was, how, when, and through whom? Now, when Jesus came to earth, he brought the kingdom with him. But he hadn't died, gone to heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit yet. The kingdom was at hand, but it still needed ushering in. This explains, at least partly, why he taught the disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come. That's because, at the time, more of it needed to be made manifest. And although much of it has been made manifest since Pentecost, more needs to come still. In other words, the Lord's Prayer is definitely still needed and hasn't been done away with. Furthermore, the passage in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, where we talk about Jesus having the Messiah having the government on his shoulders, tells us that Jesus Christ would have the government on his shoulders and that there would be no end to the increase and peace of his government. Encyclopedia Britannica had this to say about the kingdom of God. 
Behind the Greek word for kingdom, basileia, lies the Aramaic term malkut, which Jesus may have used. Malkut, M-A-L-K-U-T, refers primarily not to a geographical area or realm, nor to the people inhabiting the realm, but rather to the activity of the king himself, his exercise of sovereign power. The idea might better be conveyed in English by an expression such as kingship, rule, or sovereignty. So according to the arguably most prestigious body of secular knowledge, Encyclopedia Britannica, the kingdom of God refers to the activity of the king himself and his exercise of sovereign power. That's a powerful statement when you think about it. In fact, the very term kingdom of God is interchangeable with the government of God. I have found this idea to be helpful for myself as a Westerner to better grasp the concept of a kingdom. I have also found that most other people understand it better this way as well. I suppose this has to do with our familiarity with the concept of government. Most people grew up within a system of government instead of within a monarchy. Colonizing a new realm. Many believers fail to understand why God created the earth and man. And no, it wasn't because God was bored. Most of us are like David, who penned the following words in Psalm 8, verses 3 to 8. He said, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. In all honesty, I also have had similar thoughts from time to time as to our relevancy in his grand cosmic plan of the ages. But we must keep in mind that the modus operandi of any kingdom in order to prosper is expansion. I don't know of any successful kingdom in Earth's history that wished to remain static. The essence of life is growth. The God of life always seeks to expand his kingdom, its glory, and its influence. Like it says in Isaiah, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. This concept of expansion began way before the coming of Christ. It is simply one of the characteristics of God to expand his influence and that of his kingdom. In fact, we also observe the same bent in man. Man, who was made in the image of God, has done the same thing here on the earth. He has sought to expand his influence all over the earth. It is in man's nature to do so because it is part of his prerogative.
when God created the earth, he wanted to create a realm that would be completely different from heaven, although an expansion of heaven. He wanted to create a new thing. He wanted to create a physical realm. He wanted to create a colony from heaven that would be physical in nature. He desired to populate this new realm with a new spirit creature that would inhabit a physical body and extend his rule over this realm. So, in his delight and sovereignty, he chose to create man. And then God said, let us make man in our image according to, the, to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. I'm going to have a sip of water. Heaven's influence. So this is how the earth became a colony of the kingdom of heaven. The intent of God was to make earth an extension of his kingdom in a physical realm. God is the ultimate innovator. Merriam-Webster describes a colony as a body of people living in a new territory, but retaining ties with the parent state. I live in Canada, if you didn't know already. Now, Canada is a colony of the British Empire of Great Britain. Although much of our ties with Great Britain have waned throughout the centuries, we have retained much of the influence of our parent state. We have a common crown, a parliamentary system of government, the same language with the addition of French, because Canada is a bilingual country with French and English, and a similar set of habits, ideals, philosophies, and values as that of our parent state. Now, the same could be said of the earth after God formed Adam and put him there. Adam, along with Eve, was to colonize the realm by being fruitful and multiplying. They were to rule over the realm and colonize it with heaven's influence. Influence means to flow into. Man is meant to flow heaven's influence into the earth realm the same way God breathed life flowed into Adam. While we know that Adam and Eve made a mess of things, to say the least, is it is important to understand God's original intent when he made the earth and man. He didn't make heaven for man. He made the earth for man. He doesn't want man to populate heaven. He wants him to populate the earth. 
Too many believers live with their sight set almost exclusively on heaven. They long for heaven. They think of heaven. They sing of heaven. They cry for heaven. They dream of heaven. And some even say they wish to go home to heaven to be with the Lord. I call these rocket ship Christians. They're so set on heaven that they're of little earthly use. Or to use the words of Oliver Wendell Holmes, some people are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. That's unfortunate and yet undeniable. We've all met such Christians. Even I have been guilty of this mindset and conduct for a few seasons. Such unbridled desire for heaven, or what heaven is perceived as, are due to a lack of biblical understanding about the purpose of man and what it means to be here on earth. Here is an unpopular truth. God made man to dominate and populate the earth, not heaven. In Genesis 2.15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So, contrary to popular belief, you and I were not expatriated here. You were put here. We were put here for a powerful and distinct purpose. And this overarching purpose was to bring the influence of the kingdom, also called the government of God, and spread it to every nook and cranny of this realm by being fruitful and multiplying, both physically and spiritually, as stated in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. I really love this quote by J.A. Hardgrave. He said, What if the goal of Jesus was not just to get us from earth to heaven after we die, but to empower us to bring heaven to earth before we die? What a profound quote. What if the goal of Jesus was not just to get us from earth to heaven after we die, but to empower us to bring heaven to earth before we die. Make no mistake, this book is meant, or this series of teachings, I should say, based on the book. By the way, little plug again, if you have not already bought Kingdom Fundamentals, this book will completely change your paradigm. The reason it will change your paradigm is pretty simple. I've been a Christian for over 35 years, and when I came to the truths that I expound in the book, guess what? It changed my paradigm. So that's why I so highly recommend this book for any believer. So understanding the kingdom of God will shift your outlook. It's going to shake your beliefs and influence your actions as well it should. This is what kingdom knowledge does to a person. It is what it did for me. Central elements of every kingdom. Every kingdom in all of history, in order to be qualified as such, was composed of four main elements. The kingdom of God is no exception. These four elements are found in every kingdom on earth and throughout history. And these four elements are a king, a territory, 
law, uh, I mean laws, and subjects. First, let's talk about it. A king. A king. The king of the, of the kingdom of God is God, of course. There are plenty of instances in the scripture where God is clearly identified as the undisputed monarch of earth and heaven. Here are just a few. Psalm 47, 6 and 7 says, Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. Psalm 45, verse 6 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Psalm 29, verse 10, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. And Revelation 19.16 says, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And those are just a few. The kingship of God over all that exists in, is indisputable, and that no matter where you stand theologically. Secondly, a, a kingdom has a territory. Every kingdom has a territory. It is the piece of land owned by the king over which he extends his rule. Even the word kingdom itself defines what a kingdom is. It is composed of two words, king and dumb. A shortened version of king domain, king domain, a kingdom, i.e. the king's domain. A domain is defined as the territory over which dominion is exerted. Some kingdom territories are huge, such as the Kingdom of the British Empire, also known as the United Kingdom. During the 19th century, the United Kingdom ruled from London, England, and stretched over five continents. Other kingdoms can be quite small. Take the kingdom of Brunei, Brunei, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Don't forget, I'm French. So bear with me. B-R-U-N-E-I. Brunei, maybe Brunei. For example, take that kingdom. Take that kingdom, for example. It is smaller than the state of Delaware. And yet it still qualifies as a kingdom because it is spread over a delimited territory and is under the rule of a king. As for the kingdom of God, since its king is God himself, there are no limits to the extent of its territory. Since he is the creator and inceptor, God's ownership and rule extends all over heaven, earth, and beyond. Or, as Toy Story's Bud Lightyear would say, to infinity and beyond. However, it was God's initial desire to appoint man as the dominating presence and as ruler of the earth realm. We'll dive into this truth even more in the next chapter. So, and thirdly, the king, a kingdom has laws. Every kingdom has laws. God, our king, is a lawmaker. This is no surprise since every kingdom has laws. And as the king... 
He makes and decrees those laws. His kingdom is governed by his laws, which are expressed when he speaks, and thus by his word. There are three categories of laws that God gave in order to enable man to operate at full capacity and understanding in the earth realm. There are physical, also known as natural law, moral laws or commandments and ethics, and spiritual laws, supernatural or kingdom-related laws. In the Bible, we read of God's laws, commandments, decrees, statutes, testimonies, and ordinances. These all have legal ramifications and point to a holy creator God who delights himself in law and order. The first five books of the Bible attributed to Moses, also known as the Pentateuch, are called the Torah in Hebrew. Torah has a range of meanings, but is narrowed down to instruction, teaching, or law. Although there are three categories of laws, there are two distinct categories that are earthbound and familiar to us all. Those are the physical laws, also known as natural laws, or the moral laws, also known as commandments. Now, the third category of laws, which are spiritual, which comes from the kingdom of heaven, is not earthbound. These heavenly laws are made manifest when we pray, when miracles are performed or witnessed, or when spiritual laws are accessed. I made a good case study of spiritual laws in my book, The Law of, Attract of Attraction, Is It for Christians? This book right here. The Law of Attraction, Is It for Christians? I made a good case in that. Now, as I pointed out then, God is no respecter of persons when it comes to his established spiritual laws. This is very important for any Christian to understand. Those who know all these laws work can make them work on their behalf, whether they are Christians or not. These spiritual laws and their working are not necessarily attached to one's salvation, to one's salvation. Although I know this statement is controversial for some, I will not expand on it here. And now, let's talk about God's natural laws. In an article titled, God and Natural Law, Dr. Jason Lyle wrote the following concerning God's physical or natural laws. He wrote, everything in the universe, every plant and animal, every rock, every particle of matter or light wave is bound by laws which it has no choice but to obey. The Bible tells us that there are laws of nature, ordinances of heaven and earth, as stated in Jeremiah 33:25. These laws describe the way God normally accomplishes his will in the universe. God's logic is built into the universe. And so the universe is not haphazard or arbitrary. Or is it it haphazard? Haphazard? Yeah, or arbitrary. It obeys laws of chemistry that are logically derived from the laws of physics. 
many of which can be logically derived from other laws of physics and laws of mathematics. The most fundamental laws of nature exist only because God wills them to. They are the logical, orderly way that the Lord upholds and sustains the universe he has created. These laws of nature are embedded within creation itself and attract inherent consequences when broken. For example, we know that you cannot break the law of gravity. Well, that is, you can try, but it will bring you a world of hurt if you do so. I'm going to have a sip of water. So we're talking about natural laws. Human sexuality is also part of God's natural order and has inherent natural laws attached to it. When speaking of sexual sin, Paul wrote of the inherent consequences of going against the natural order. Of homosexuality, he said that those who committed such acts received in themselves the due penalty for their error. That's from Romans 127. And of the sin of fornication, in 1 Corinthians 6.18, he said, Flee from sexual, sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. In other words, sexual sins are not just the breaking of God's moral law, but also the breaking of his natural law. Only recently has science confirmed just how true these passages are. A little over a decade ago, scientists found out about a scientific phenomenon called male microchimerism. Male microchimerism. Now, you might be asking, what is male microchimerism? And it's a good question. Well, it is the phenomena by which some women, some women, may retain the DNA of every man they have ever slept with within their own bodies. Yikes. Of course, the ramifications of this phenomenon are far-reaching and honestly quite scary. But suffice it to say that this gives even more meaning and credence to the Bible when it says that the two shall become one flesh. Furthermore, many deliverance ministers have confirmed that demons can be transferred through illicit sexual union. This is yet another thing they don't teach you in Sunday school. As for the moral laws of God, his commandments and precepts, we know they were given to man for just conduct, peace, and as an expression of God's holiness reflected through his people, as they obey him. Furthermore, it is interesting to note that the Bible's definition of sin is simply the transgression of the law or the breaking of his law, as stated in 1 John 3.4. As citizens of the kingdom, in order to benefit fully of our rights and privileges, we must, just like King David, delight ourselves in the laws of God, which are found in his word. There, 
they are also to be found throughout his creation for those willing to look around and learn. This subjection and delight in his ways are what brings blessings to our lives. This is what gives us the favor of the king. David said it this way in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. He said, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is is the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. And finally, after we spoke of every kingdom having laws, and of course, I think I made the point very clear here that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, has very, very clear laws that are given by the king. Finally, number four, every kingdom everywhere has always had subjects or citizens. Every kingdom has subjects. A king's rule is not just over a given territory, but also extends to the people living within that territory, to its citizens. It is also interesting to note that in a kingdom, the citizens are called subjects. The word is from the Latin subjectus, which means brought under. This indicates that they are subjected to the king's decisions, laws, and decrees. They are brought under his rule for better or worse. But this definition may sound pejorative to some. So keep in mind that conversely, subjects are also brought under the king's favor, benevolence, magnanimity. <laughs> nice word. It's, it's easier to write than to say. Magnanimity. <laughs> and blessings. And this is even truer when your king is the king of kings, such as is the case for kingdom citizens. Furthermore, people become citizens of any given kingdom by birth. I am a citizen of Canada because I was born here. Therefore, I am subject to its laws, constitution, but I also have rights and privileges. Similarly, you and I must be born into the kingdom of God by being born again or born from above. I cover this in detail in chapter 4. Every citizen in every kingdom has rights and privileges, but also duties and responsibilities. As a citizen, I am required to uphold and obey my country's laws, provided they agree with God's laws. I am required to pay taxes. I am required to be a productive citizen and to contribute. 
The same can be said of the kingdom of God. We have rights, privileges, duties, and responsibilities. We were granted the highest blessings available and given all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is from Ephesians 1, 2, uh, 1, I mean, and 2 Peter 1, 3. However, we are mandated to bear fruit and charged as ambassadors to fulfill a great commission, as we know, you know John 15 and, and Matthew 28, 18 to 20. So the Bible says that we were given the power to become not just mere subjects or citizens, but actual children of the king. And such power cannot be taken lightly. Now let's look at more kingdom concepts, because we looked at the four main ones that, that every kingdom must have. But there are other concepts that a kingdom may or may not have to certain degrees. Of course, these vary, but we're going to look at these concepts. Aside from the four main kingdom elements described previously, there are even more concepts to be found in the Bible that confirm just how real and tangible God's kingdom is. In fact, after I understood the fundamentals of the kingdom for myself, I was amazed at how much the Bible reads like a constitution for believers. I was also amazed at how many kingdom parallels can be woven between the kingdom of God and earthly kingdoms and governments. So there is that. Every kingdom has a constitution. A constitution is defined as the basic principles and laws of a nation, state, or social group that determine the powers and duties of the government and guarantee certain rights to the people in it. Every country has a written constitution. And if you're like me, you've, uh, well, you've probably never read it. Yes. I can be neglectful in some matters, but I do know that I should read it. I never read it because I am more enthralled with my kingdom citizenship than with my earthly citizenship. I prefer reading my kingdom constitution because it bears a greater impact on my life than the earthly one I am under. The kingdom of God overarches any earthly kingdom. Its constitution supersedes anything else you may be under in the earth realm. You will understand this more fully by the end of this book or this these studies that we're doing today, these, uh, these teachings. By now, you've probably made the connection that the Bible is the constitution of the kingdom of God and for its citizens. But unlike any other constitution, you don't want to let this one gather dust. Read it, meditate on it, study it, and decree it over your life every day. And speaking of decreeing the uh, the Constitution or, or the Bible, decreeing the Word of God, I have great news to announce. Uh, 
actually this week I should upload on Amazon a new book, which are called Just Decrees for Your Life. It is a, a wonderful compilation of decrees that cover the whole spectrum of your life. And so I'm going to leave it at that, but I'm really excited because I'm like, I'm really, really this close, this close to uploading it to Amazon. I just got the confirmation from uh, my cover designer that the book is about ready to go. So uh, I'm pretty excited about that. So this week it should be up and it should be up on Amazon. So yeah, just decrees for your life. So another thing that you, you would find in a kingdom are rights. In any given country, citizens have rights. According to Wikipedia, rights are legal, social, or ethical principles of freedom or entitlement. That is, rights are the fundamental normative rules about what is allowed of people or owed to people according to some legal system. The kingdom of God is a kingdom that operates by law. I mentioned that already. When a citizen's rights are infringed upon, it is his privilege to claim those rights in the courts. We will examine this further in the chapters on authority and faith. But suffice it to say that as citizens of the kingdom of God, we were given by law tremendous privileges and rights that we can boldly claim before the king through declarations, intercession, and prayers. Just as there is a due process in any government to claim your rights, so it is with the kingdom of God. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul appealed to his rights as a Roman citizen twice in the book of Acts. It's found in Acts uh, 16 verses 37 and 38 and Acts 22 verses 25 through 28. In the latter passage, Paul states that he was born a Roman citizen. His citizenship status by birth is why he can successfully appeal to the emperor. In Acts chapter 25, we can surmise that if he understood his earthly rights, he most certainly understood his kingdom rights as well. Another thing that you're going to find in any good uh, kingdom or, or government, system of government, is ministries. Ministries. The word ministry is a familiar one for most believers today. In fact, it is very familiar in the kingdom of God vernacular. In our churches, we have different ministries. For example, we have youth ministries, worship ministries, singles ministries, hospitality ministries, food pantry ministries, etc., our pastors and paid leaders are following their call to minister or into the ministry. We often see ministries bearing the names of their founders in North America. So-and-so uh, -so ministries, for example. Uh, and that, that's something I was kind of struggling with when I first uh, founded Thriving on Purpose. I didn't know if I was going to call it Thriving on Purpose or if I was going to call it you know, if I was going to call my website SebastianRichard.com or if I was going to call it ThrivingOnPurpose.com. So I, I was kind of struggling with that. But uh, after deliber uh, deliberating on that, thinking about it and, and um, 
so on and so forth, I really came to the conclusion that I wanted to, uh, I wanted the ministry to have its own name. Uh, I wanted, I wanted the ministry to be something I would, and sorry, it's hard for me to exp express. I didn't want me to be where the, the, the puck ends or where the, where the puck stops or the buck stops. You know what I mean? I wanted to always aim for something higher than myself. If that makes any sense. Anyway, so that's why I decided to call it Thriving on Purpose Ministries. Now, likewise, kingdoms, also known as governments, have different ministries. The word ministry simply means, in the Middle English, ministry, ministry, which is to say personal service. Also, it is from the, the Middle French, ministère, which means service and duty. Going back to the Old French, it is borrowed from the Latin ministerium, meaning activity of a servant, duty, task, support. Now, in Canada, I, I like reverting back to my own home country. As, I'm, as I wrote the book, I, I wanted to do that because I understand my country. I understand how it operates. And I knew I was able to explain it better. Sorry. So in Canada, as in most governed ter territories, kingdoms and countries, we have different ministries or services for the citizens. So we have a ministry of health, a ministry of education, a ministry of defense, a ministry of environment, a ministry of employment, etc. Now it is useful in order to understand these terms better, to replace them with the word service. For example, the service of education or the service of environment or the service of defense. Now, good governments are always put in place to serve the people. I, and I know, I understand that good governments are a rare breed nowadays. I mean, I don't... I don't like, to be honest, that the way things are going, it's very hard to, to know which countries actually still have a good government, which is kind of disheartening. Let's just put it this way. But as kingdom citizens, we can rest at peace knowing that our ultimate government, our overarching government, is the government of the kingdom of God. And that is a perfect government. Anyway, so good governments are always put in place to serve the people. Their ministries or services are put in place to help the citizens. The kingdom of God also has different branches in its government or ministries, if you will. These are established governmental services that are made readily available to all kingdom citizens. Now, we will look at these next week. I'm going to end the uh, the study, the teaching for tonight. I'm going to end it here, and next week we're going. I'm going to continue in uh, chapter one. So I'm going to. It's going to be uh, chapter one, part uh, part B, if you will, and uh, we're going to continue read. I'm going to continue my my reading from Kingdom Fundamentals, and we will continue understanding more and more about the kingdom of God and how it operates. And I think that these components are, are very eye-opening 
because I think a lot of believers and I'm I, myself, I was like that. We're like, yeah, yeah, the kingdom of God. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. But I didn't fully understand that human governments got their ideas somewhere. And it's it's fascinating to me when you really look at it. The kingdom of God is really the perfect, the perfect government. And it has all the same components of what we're used to in our earthly government. So it's, it's a fascinating study. And we'll continue it next week. Now, I hope that this has blessed you. I hope you appreciated uh, the content that I'm offering you right now. And if that's the case, I hope that you will share this broadcast with as many people as possible. Remember, sharing is caring. And again, I hope you will treat yourself to this amazing book, which is uh, I'm very proud of Kingdom Fundamentals because not only does it is it a, a hugely eye-opening book, but I see it also as a, a book that can serve as a, a future reference as well. It's a it's an eye-opening book. It's a life-changing book, but it's also a book that you're happy to have on your bookcase for future reference because it contains a lot of information, a lot, a lot. I did a lot of studying uh, for this uh, this book, and I hope it blesses you. Uh, as we continue uh, diving into it every week. So God bless you, and I will see you next week.